you got one of these Bibles, page 836, but that's kind of a cheater way of doing it. But you guys all have like uh, apps and stuff, so you can just type in Luke 5, verses 17-26, or just type 517 probably. And that's the, the chunk that we're going to get out of. But today, you can't detect it, maybe, unless you are really listening for it. But I still have just a little bit of a scratch in my throat. And I'm just now getting over this, like, week of illness that has it's been more than a week of illness, actually. And it, I'll spare you some of the gory details, but I don't want to because I like to complain about my aches and bumps and pains and things like that. But it was... It was not a fun last week, especially during Christmas. You feel like this is the one time you should have a voice. And I got laryngitis. I could barely speak. But I'm getting over it. But what's most disappointing about it is that my kids all had the same kind of crud going through the whole house. And they got over it in like days. And it's taken me like more than a week now. And I'm still not even all the way over it. And because of some of the, again, back to the gory details, because of some of the puking, I think, and whatever else, and all the coughing fits that were keeping me up, back is in knots. And all of this is at the dawn of my 35th birthday, which means I'm pretty much dead because I'm so old and I have like no no hope for the future. I know that this this is just the beginning of probably, I feel like, a lifetime of pain. And, uh, and it's a little bit discouraging, if I'm honest. Um, so if you're older than 35, I mean, uh, uh, good on you. You're doing it. You're doing it. You're encouraging me. Please encourage me. I need the help this week. But we all have these little pains and sicknesses and things like that that we feel, man, I just don't get it. Like, why is it that God would choose to allow for the preacher to get laryngitis on Christmas? And everybody here already knows the answer to that. They're like, I want to go to those short sermons, man. And well, my voice is back, so the sermons are back too. But... Uh, but we, we think that way, don't we? We think, oh, come on, this is unfair, this is unjust, this doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. And so we, we go to God and we pray and we ask for healing or we ask for help. And we have these needs, deep needs. And I know I'm just at the beginning of this, right? Like I'm gearing up for a long time with like chronic pain in my life and all of this other kind of stuff. Trying to get used to the idea that life is painful and then you die. And it's all better afterwards. That's what my, my doctor friend, he says. He's, he's a retired physician and he practiced medicine for like more than 30 years and he says there's good news Kyle all pain eventually ends <laughs> but the bad news of course is maybe not in this lifetime <laughs> so this is a depressing start isn't it yeah it's a pretty depressing start here's what I want you to do because we're talking about pain we're talking about healing we're talking about all these things I want you to imagine in your brain if you're like me, this doesn't take that long. But I want you to imagine that God has the ability to heal your greatest hurt, your deepest hurt. He can meet your, your most important pressing need in your life. And all you got to do is ask him and he would do it, right? He's like a genie. And if you were to ask God to do that, what would God be healing for you? If, if, you could, if you could ask God to fix your one biggest complaint in life, it doesn't have to be a physical pain. It could be relational strife. It could be because there's a lot bigger pains than my sore back, I know. But it could be any number of these things because we, we suffer. People suffer. You know, we're humans and we got late life's hard. It is hard. And it's cold and winter and whatever. It's a little depressing. What would God be healing if he were healing your deepest hurt or mending your greatest brokenness? Now, you might have already brought this thing, whatever it is, to God in prayer over and over again throughout the years. This might have been an ongoing thing. It might be, like I said, relational pain or brokenness, but whatever it is, I want you to just keep that thing tucked into your brain because this is the kind of pain that we want to be talking about today. So today we're in Luke chapter 5, verse 17. Hopefully you found your way there. Now, if your Bible is... The same as my Bible, there's a heading at this. It says, Jesus forgives and heals a paralyzed man. Some, some Bibles put the heading, Jesus uh, heals the, paral the paralytic, or Jesus heals the paralyzed man. So this is, uh, this, it might surprise you to find out that these headings are not, uh, they're not in like the manuscripts 
that that the Bible was written in. Okay, so when you're reading through the manuscripts, the people, the Bible translators, the teams of Bible translators over the years that are like putting this thing together so that we can read it and make sense of it and find our way around are putting in these section headings. They're kind of making them up to represent whatever's in there. And they're also um, they're also putting in like the numbers of chapters and verses and stuff. They weren't writing in chapters and verses. It's just helpful reference kind of material, right? So, but what I don't like about these things is that when you open up your Bible and you read Jesus forgives and heals the paralyzed, man, my sermon is bust, man. Like you've already read the whole plot summary. It's like, well, what are, what are we going to do now? We gotta, it's like a spoiler. Every time we open up the Bible, we have this little spoiler. But even though it does kind of spoil it a little bit, because just by reading the title, you know you're prepared for a paralyzed person to enter into the narrative, and you know that Jesus is going to heal him. And there's this other element, though. There's this one other element that the title doesn't prepare you for, and that's what this particular event says about who Jesus is. So we're in the Luke documentary right now, and and this is his sort of behind-the-scenes look at the life and times of Jesus Christ. And he's trying to give us an honest portrayal of exactly what that was like. He's found all these various sources. He's put them together so that we might learn something about this Jesus person, so that we might learn the thing that we need to know the most about this Jesus person. Now, you might be surprised. So we're going to get into this. And Jesus, we know, is going to heal a paralyzed man. Spoiler alert. Um, but what we don't realize is that during this time, there was actually a lot of people that were out healing folks. It was like, you know, they got like witch doctors or they got just other healers. And, and they even have physicians like Luke, the author of this, is known as a, as a sort of medical doctor or physician. And so healing isn't completely foreign and it's not, Jesus is not the only person doing it. And it's, so it's not unique that Jesus is healing people. What's unique is the kind of people, the kind of illnesses that Jesus is healing. So Jesus is going to the lepers, the blind, these people who have illnesses that put them into the outskirts of their community. Because there's all this thinking, which we're going to get to a little bit later in the sermon. There's all this thinking about how, like what that, what that sickness says about that person. Like they're reading into that going, oh, this person is probably full of sin. That's why they were born blind. In fact, I think it's in Luke 6, it says, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind. And so there's this sort of cultural assumption among the Jews that sickness is tied into this kind of stuff. So the story today is no exception to that. Jesus is going to heal a paralytic. So not unlike having leprosy, to be paralyzed in the ancient Palestinian culture was like a social death sentence. Like, you were, you must have done something so bad that God saw it just to give you a life paralyzed. Whether that came about later on in your life or you were born that way, whatever it is, the assumption is that you had, you had sinned so grievously or your parents had sinned so grievously that you deserved paralysis according to God. And that it was his like way of acting judgment out on you. So, obviously, you don't want to hang around with those kind of people, especially if you have any sort of, you know, religious pride or spiritual pride or whatever. You don't want to hang around with the people that have been, like, already prejudged and determined by God to be sort of broken and on the outskirts of society, right? So, paralysis is not only a, a sort of social, a physical handicap, but it's also a social handicap as well. In fact, it's interesting because, to be paralyzed then, you gotta you got to think. Like, there's there's no such thing as, like, you know, handicap accessible or anything like that. Like, nobody's accommodating for this man's needs in any way whatsoever. In fact, mobility at all for the person in our story meant having four friends pick him up onto a cot and move him around on, like, some, like, gurney, basically, right? So it's more complicated than being paralyzed today. Like, this dude is very, very limited in the kind of life that he's able to live. And all of this is, I mean, he's hes a physical, literal burden to the people around him that, that they have to carry around, right? And all of this socially is weighing on him, right? So he's telling himself a story about who he is because of all of this, because he believes, like everybody else is telling him, that this is reflective of some inner condition that he has, right? So psychologically, this is tough. But to literally add insult to injury, the common assumption, again, is that 
somehow this, this paralysis is linked to sin. And so people avoid him. Now, this kind of discrimination, which is that's what it is, is unthinkable today. Now, it was a, it, you couldn't imagine treating a person like this today. Like it's, you, you can't do that. It doesn't work. It's not acceptable. It's not okay. But nevertheless, it was the world that he was living in. This is the world of this paralyzed man that he had to, he had to deal with. Not only was it unwilling to accommodate his disability for the sake of the person living with that disability, the assumption was that this person just deserved this stuff, right? It was like a, it was sort of like a social, like witch trial, basically, where they're just, they don't even care to get to know the person. They've already determined everything they need to know about you just by looking at you, and you can just stay over there, thanks very much, and let's not ever talk or whatever, right? So it's bad. We get it. It's bad. Now, Worst part, maybe, is that the religious leaders of the time, the spiritual elite, were at the head of this, this movement. They were like, they were championing this thing because they were the ones saying, well, it's sin, which is an offense against God, and this is, this is why we know all of this kind of stuff. So this is the world that paralyzed man lives in. One day, and you got to just imagine what this is like for him. One day, he's sitting there, laying on his bed, doing the same thing he does every day, and his friends come back to him who've been out and about, and they've heard news of this guy, this teacher, this rabbi, this healer, and there's rumors floating around about him being a Messiah. All they know is that he's been healing folks left, right, and center like crazy. And we've gone through a few of those stories already when Jesus goes into Capernaum and he's healing all these people, he's casting out demons. He's like the Messiah guy, right? And so they get wind of this and they're like, man, I mean, if he can heal the blind and do all this other kind of stuff, like maybe we should, maybe we should go see him. And then, of course, the day comes that Jesus comes to their town. And they know he's close. We could, we could carry our friend all the way over there. Come on, what do you think, man? Let's do this thing. And he's going, oh, I don't, what's he got to lose, right? So they go. Four of his friends and him, they go because Jesus is there teaching. And they're making their way. And they're trying to find a way to get their buddy the help that he needs. So he's got... At least four good friends. And all of life that's thrown at him, he's at least got four good friends. And when they get there, we expect to see Jesus healing a whole bunch of people because they're bringing the sick to him or whatever. But he's not. Surprisingly, Jesus is teaching people, not healing them. Not just average everyday people either, but it says that the, the sort of spiritual elite had come in from all over, from Galilee, from Judea, all over Israel. So like Israel's greatest thinkers and theologians were like, they're getting word of what Jesus was doing. And they're going, man, we got to check this dude out. So verse 17, it says, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. These, these people were, were the, the thought controllers of the day. They had the ability to be able to say to a paralyzed man, you're unclean, and you're judged, <laughs> and you're out. And everybody would listen to him. And that person's life would be impacted by it dramatically. And so they're hearing stuff about Jesus, and they come to hear the teachings of Jesus firsthand. Because these guys are serious about this, and they can't ignore the teachings of Jesus. Because there's all these healings that are happening alongside of these teachings. They gotta deal with it. They gotta start looking that stuff in the face, because he wasn't simply bringing just a new thought. He was bringing in a new reality, and his teachings had this fresh authority. So when you look in, in five, uh, let's see here, we're at seventeen. Goes down, it says they brought all these people, and then it says at the end of seventeen, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. The sick. This is this new authority that he's coming with. Not only are all the thinkers coming, but they're coming because the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. And they've got to deal with the fact that this guy's making the claims that he's making. He's teaching what he's teaching. And he has the ability to back it up by healing the sick. And that, that says something. They've got to figure out what's going on. So to the intellectual elites... They just, they have to deal with it, right? It's easy to argue theology with a the theologian, but it's tough 
it is really tough to argue with a person who has just experienced a miracle. It's really tough. Later on in John chapter 9, this is kind of a famous thing that comes to my mind. When Jesus had healed a blind man, he sent him off. And, and, and the, the Pharisees go, okay, let's go, let's go find this guy. So the next day they find this blind guy. And they're like, hey, 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 what, what's the deal with that Jesus guy? And they're trying to trap him. Because if he says, oh, he's the Messiah, man, then they kick him out of the synagogue and they ostracize him again. He's out, right? So they're trying to trap him. And he, he says, I think it's the best response ever. Because what can they say about it? He says, look, I don't, know, I don't know if he's the son of God. I don't know if he's the Messiah or not. As you claim, maybe he is, maybe he's not. All I know is that I was blind. That dude spit in the mud, rubbed it on my eyes, and now I can see. So we just got to deal with it. We just got to deal with this new reality. And it just stares them in the face. And they go, well, man, I got they have to think about that. They can't just dismiss it and go, yeah, yeah, no, that doesn't really work because we can argue all these other theological points around it. They have to deal with the fact that this dude is being healed and that Jesus is doing the, the healing. The, the miraculous has a way of silencing debate. So for all of this, they simply had to contend with the teachings of Jesus. They didn't have to like him. They didn't have to agree with him, but they had to contend with him. And that's what they came to do. They come famously to debate with him, to contend with him, and to figure it out. So teachers come from all over to listen and contend with Jesus' teaching. The house is packed, and people are pressing in from all, all over. They're trying to get seats, straining in to watch and listen to Jesus' teachings. Sadly, this is the scene that the paralyzed man has carried into as well. So his buddies get there, and they're like, there is no way we're going to be able to, the four of us with a gurney, be able to walk into this crowd of this, it's like a house. There's no way we're going to be able to get in there with our buddy. How can we possibly do this? And then you can almost hear one of the guys thinking in his head, looking over at the stairs that go up to the roof and going, yeah, I wonder if, I mean, what do we got to lose? I guess. You get, what if we just brought him up to the roof, took chunks of the roof off because it's kind of easy. It's not like our roofs. That would be a hard job. I learned on Jeff's roof this last summer. Roofs don't come off easy. <laughs> but uh, so the roofs come off easy. They go, well, what if we just went up there, took the roof off, and just plopped him right down in Jesus' lap, made him deal with him. He'd have to, he'd have to deal with them if we did it. And so they go, they, it's crazy. That's a little bit of a nuts thing to do. But they march this guy up these stairs, up onto the roof. I'm sure it's a, a, a gong show. Like I one time I had to carry a dude out of the woods who had shattered his pelvis. He'd been log, hurt in the logging accident. And he was just an average-sized guy, but he was heavy. And there's five of us, and it's not easy to hike just dead weight around. So these guys bring him up to the rooftop, and now I want you to imagine that you're Jesus, okay? Or that you're inside of the house listening to Jesus anyways, if it's not too blasphemous to imagine you're Jesus. So Jesus is there teaching, and then all of a sudden, everybody's just rapt attention, and then some straw starts floating down, or like you hear a, a, a ceiling tile, a roof tile start to move and grind, you go, what is going on up there? And it's pretty distracting, right? It's got to be pretty distracting. All of a sudden, the roof's off, and there's four guys lowering a gurney down into the teaching area. Okay, now, imagine. We're doing a lot of imagining this morning. Imagine you're the guy on the gurney. Imagine you're the paralyzed man. You are helpless, and you're being lowered down. This is terrifying if I'm, if I'm that guy. Like, that's a scary, that's a scary thing. Also, he's got an awful lot riding on this thing. I mean, already he's kind of shoved to the outskirts of society, so he's not going to lose a lot of face for doing it. But this is his one shot. This is his one shot for a guy that could make his life different. He could fix it. Like, Jesus alone, if he's got any hope in the world at all, Jesus is the hope that he's got for, for anything. That's the only hope he has. And so it's these moments right before he's going to have this encounter and see how Jesus is going to react and respond to being interrupted pretty rudely in the middle of his famous teachings and lectures. And all the people around him are going to be like, ah, no, that's not cool. Right? So he's, he's there. He's unable to move. He's just going to have to take this whole thing. And as he comes down, he meets Jesus' eyes. And then... Something crazy happens. 
Jesus looks at the guy, and then he looks up at these four idiots at the roof that had just lowered him down, and, and they're like, I'm just imagining them like, <laughs> like what's going on? It's going to happen? It's so exciting. And they're, they're staring down, gawking at all of this, and Jesus looks down at them, and he looks up at these guys, and he thinks to himself, man, that is an awful lot of faith. And with a single sentence, he healed that man's deepest need. He, he changed his life forever. And he says to him, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, imagine you're the paralyzed guy. You're like, didn't come here for forgiveness, dude. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, wouldn't you be a little bit like, uh, is there uh, anything else that you'd like to see today? Because he's paralyzed. And he, he came because Jesus is the healer. And Jesus doesn't heal him. And he, the paralyzed guy, he doesn't have a Bible with a, a, a caption, a spoiler alert that says, don't worry, after he forgives you, he's going to heal you. He's got to live in this world of going, oh, all right, that's awesome. Now, I think for you and I, that's a really disappointing moment because, because we're coming at it from the worldview that we're coming at it. But I do, I honestly believe, and I, I thought about this quite a bit over the last couple of weeks, I really think that this guy is pleased as punch that Jesus is able to forgive his sins. Now, you got to think about the complexity of this because if he believes that Jesus is the Son of God, if he believes that Jesus is the Messiah, and he alone has the ability to forgive his sins, which are causing all of this, this maladies that he's experiencing, all of this discomfort and hardship that he's going through, then forgiveness is what he needs. He needs to be restored in that way. But man, it sure would be nice if he could walk afterwards so that when he leaves that place, that he wouldn't have to be like, no, 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 no. I, I know I'm paralyzed, but like, honestly, it's good. I'm forgiven. Trust me. Like, it would be pretty nice if he could walk out of there and not have to explain to everybody this whole situation again. But what everybody else thinks about him doesn't matter. It's stupid. Who cares what everybody else thinks about him? What God thinks about him matters. And so in so much as he believes that Jesus is the Son of God, is the Messiah, that is a very significant moment for a man of faith. That is a very significant healing moment to be accepted by God, to know that this whole life that he had led, where he was just sure he was rejected and not loved by God, is gone, and he's accepted by God. That's a big moment for him. But for you and I, think probably naturally a little bit disappointing. So now I want you to imagine for a minute what would go through your head if you were him. Earlier I had asked you guys to think of your greatest need and keep it in your mind until right now. Okay, so bring it back up. <laughs> bring that greatest need up. And unlike the paralyzed man, it probably took you a minute to think of what that greatest need was. If you've, if you've even thought, I'm not judging, I'm just saying. It's hard. Reminds my back. <laughs> but I would venture to guess that it was something other than forgiveness. Was it forgiveness? Were you guys going, yeah, the, the thing I need the most in my life is forgiveness. Is that your greatest need? Did, did your greatest need exceed the need of the paralyzed man? And yet Jesus found a greater need to meet for the paralyzed man. And we get a little bit offended when Jesus doesn't meet our every whimsical need and heal our little maladies and make my little my lower back problems go away or make my laryngitis go away. Now, I can't blame you for, you know, having a fairly consumeristic need or whatever, making Jesus into a, a gene, because I said, pretend that God is a genie, and you could ask him one wish. So it's not your fault. But I do, I do think it's important that we be confronted by this reality 
in the way that the paralyzed man was surely confronted by this reality. Right? The paralyzed man, he, he again, he doesn't know that things are going to get better. He doesn't know that he's going to be able to walk shortly. He's still just going, this is what I get. Imagine, imagine if you would, that Jesus proclaims his sins forgiven, and then that's it. Imagine he never actually heals him. He didn't have to. He could have not. It seems like he gets kind of pushed into it later on. But imagine that he never actually heals him. It's just forgiving him. I mean, Jesus isn't forgiving him because he interrupted his lecture and disrupted things. That's not, it's not a, a situational forgiveness that Jesus is offering him. When this paralyzed man comes down through the roof, he's offering to forgive him for his offense against God, which is crazy. And, and the, the Pharisees there, they think it's crazy too, right? But he's, he's saying, I have the ability to forgive you for what you did to God. Now, imagine this. We, man, we're doing a lot of imagining this morning. But imagine this. Imagine somebody that, imagine that car that drives by your house every single day. And it drives just too fast, man. Come, like, slow down. We don't need it, right? Imagine that car. Now imagine you're out on your porch, and it's not wintertime. You can, we can have a happier setting for this. It's going to get dark soon. Don't worry. Imagine it's a beautiful day outside, and your dog's out playing, and then all of a sudden this car comes driving up the road, and he runs your dog over, and you look, and he's just texting. And he doesn't even notice until it's like too late, and you're like, oh, man, he just killed my dog. And then he jumps out of the car. This is very dramatic. He jumps out of the car. He, he grabs your dog. He's like, ah, I'm so sorry, man. I'm so sorry. And he brings this dog up to your deck. And he's like, I am so sorry. And then your neighbor pops out the window and he goes, hey, don't worry about it. You're forgiven. You'd be like, no, you're not. You're not forgiven. Forget that nonsense. What joke is that? You're not forgiven. I get to offer you forgiveness. And that's what, that's what the Pharisees are taking offense at here because Jesus is going, all right, paralyzed guy who sinned against God grievously enough to be paralyzed and deserve it, your sins are forgiven you. And they're like, what? He doesn't have the authority to do that. You can't do that, Jesus. Well, he can. But they just don't believe that he can do that. So let's keep reading. Well, yeah, let's keep reading. This is chapters 21 to 25. Ah, sorry, I'm just going to find it. It says, The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, after Jesus had just forgiven the man, they began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? I mean, we just kind of covered that. He's got to be God. If he's, if he's able to forgive sins against God, offenses against God, God can forgive those things. People can't do that. Your neighbor can't forgive buddies, trespass. It doesn't work that way. So who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? <laughs> What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk? So Jesus is bringing this thing, right? He's, he's bringing it right to a culmination. So he's, he's offered this paralyzed man forgiveness for those sins which caused his paralysis. And he's, in doing so, he's making a big claim to these people that he knows are keeping up intellectually with what he's actually saying. He's actually saying, I'm that guy that you've been waiting for. I'm the Messiah guy. And I have the ability to forgive sins. But he doesn't look the part. Not at all, right? It's confusing for him. Now, we have to understand that Jesus has this, has this authority to forgive sins because, because he's the only one who has the authority to forgive sins. As the Son of God, as, as the offended party himself, he has the ability to forgive sins, right? And in the case of this man's paralysis, according to their worldview, God's the offended party. That's all true. But, but when it comes to just sin in general, like not the kind of sin that caused 
by the way, spoiler alert, there's not sin that causes paralysis. That's not how paralysis happens. We know that now, right? But we all do sin, and sin does cause brokenness and hurt in our lives. It wrecks stuff, man. Like when God gave the Ten Commandments, it's like, do not murder, do not commit adultery, don't do any of those things. That hurts other people. All those things hurt other people. Don't lie. Don't do all these. Don't, don't hurt each other, man. That's not how I created you guys to exist and live. And so he's, yes, there is a human element to the offense. There is some part of the party is going to be a human part. When you commit adultery, that, that hurts people. That actually hurts people. But first and foremost, the very first thing that is, is it's a sin and an offense against God because he created you for more than that, because he created that person that you're hurting. And that's his beautiful creation. And you're wrecking it, man. So that all of these sins, they're not just, even if you're just hurting yourself by doing it, even if you're, if you, if it, you're the only affected person, you're also created by God. And, and God is offended, rightly so, when you sin against him. He's the offended party. That's just how it works. So now, all of this is running through the Pharisees' minds, right? They're, they're trying to figure out who God is and how this all works. And so it says in verse 22, Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? What's easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk. But, and this is the big key thing of this whole passage, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and he went home, praising God. Now this is this is confrontational to everybody present. This is shocking news. It's hard to argue with a miracle, like you said. Right? Now they've got something to deal with, something to get their heads around, especially this kind of miracle. And essentially what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, I know what you guys are thinking. Talk is cheap. You're forgiven. Yeah, talk's cheap, man. Sounds impressive to be able to offer a paralyzed man forgiveness, doesn't it? Because that would say something about me. That would say something about my authority that I have to do this. That would say something about my claims. That would substantiate. If I, if I did indeed have the power and ability to forgive this man's sins, I would be the offended party, and that's a significant claim. And I know what you're thinking. Talk's cheap. Now, I watched a YouTube video once of this. Uh, it was a rookie jiu-jitsu guy who went online. He bought himself a black belt. And he went to this new club where people didn't know him. And he, like, straps on this sweet black belt. And he's like, yeah, man, I'm going to get all kinds of mad respect around here. People are going to respect this thing. But, I mean, the color just doesn't matter. Once you get to the mat, it's like, who cares what color belt that person's wearing? And he was so clearly not a black belt when it came down to it, right? Because the talk was cheap. So there's these outward signs of authority. He could talk a good game, but all of a sudden... It, it just kind of falls through, right? And so they're, they're calling him. They're saying there's no reality. This is a lot of hot air. What Jesus is doing here is pretty much the exact opposite. It would be like a black belt showing up to a new dojo wearing a white belt. And everybody's going, nah, he doesn't look the type to me, man. He doesn't look like he knows this thing. And nobody suspects that this is, this is possible or capable because he's God in human flesh. And we want, we want humans to do human things. We want humans to offer human things. But he is, he is making God-sized claims. And they're like, whoa, I don't know if you got the power or the authority to do that. And there's also videos of that happening, too. They're fun to watch. But Jesus' Jesus' claim to forgive sins against God doesn't fit with his human form. Unless, unless he's the Messiah. And that truth is exactly what Jesus is confronting these intellectuals with. We, we don't pick up on it. I didn't pick up on it until I read it in the commentary. But by referring to himself as the Son of Man, Jesus is using some sort of insider theological language with these intellectuals. We often hear that and we think it's just an allusion to Jesus' humanity and his humility and his, his sort of humble stature as a, as a part of the human kind. But R.C. Sproul, one of the, a, a good commentator, and famous theologian points out, he says, For anyone trained in the scriptures as these men were, it is a clear allusion to the Old Testament prophetic book of Daniel. And he says, uh, Sproul points out, In the vision that Daniel has into the very inner chambers of heaven, we see the figure 
of the Son of Man. The Son of Man is, is sent to the world by the Ancient of Days, who is God. And the purpose for which the Son of Man is sent is to be the divine judge of all humankind. And so, far from being a humble self-designation of Jesus' earthly humanity, it indicates that Jesus is identifying himself with this heavenly being. Every rabbi there, every teacher, every theologian, every intellect would have caught the inference. This is a radical statement of Jesus' ultimate authority. And so, in a sense, they see in these claims his black belt. <laughs> but, so they might know that it's not just empty boasts. Jesus turns to the paralyzed man and he commands him to get up and walk. And immediately he does so. He is forced into obedience by his, his now master. He, he is the, the ruler, the king, the healer, the man. He's the Messiah. And he obeys and immediately he gets up, takes his mat, and he leaves rejoicing. And this puts the Pharisees in a real bind. Because you can't argue with a miracle. It's really hard to argue with a miracle, especially one like this. But by their own system, if the man was paralyzed on account of his sins, the only way that he could get up and walk again were if his sins were actually dealt with, or if they were forgiven. So they have to look at this guy walking out, and they're going, I can't get it. I hate it. Why? I don't understand how... How, how does it all fit? And they're missing the obvious answer to the whole thing. It's just screaming out at Jesus like, so that you will know that I have the authority to heal and to forgive sins. I'm going to do this thing for you. So open your eyes. This dude just walked out. His sins are dealt with. All of that stuff that offended God, I dealt with it. I forgave it. I am who I say that I am. That's not an empty claim anymore. And the students of the law, man, this is frustrating for the Pharisees because these guys, they know what it takes to get forgiveness. They know what atonement takes. It's they're in this, they're entrenched in the sacrificial system that it's costly. It, it costs them money and their resources and their time and their energy. And they're always having to like make up for all the things that they've done wrong. It's a big complicated system. And they're like, this is what we have to do for our little minor infractions. You know, I mean, they really don't count. But this guy who's paralyzed, you're just kind of like, what? Yeah, your sins are forgiven, man. Good, don't worry about it. No, no sacrifices. You don't have to do anything like that. No, what about all the rules, man? Come on, you can't just throw all that stuff away. It's like thousands of years of like system and rules and dogma that's been handed down. And they're like not into it because Jesus is just going, I'm here now, man. This is good news that the Messiah has come and he has the authority to forgive your offenses against God. But they're offended by it. <laughs> they're offended by it because they can't do anything to earn it. They can't control it. They can't. It, it, it puts them on the same ground as the paralyzed dude. And they spent their whole lives being on separate places than the paralyzed dude. And now, literally, He's walking. <laughs> it's, the playing fields are flat. <laughs> so it's only natural that they're offended when Jesus just sweeps away the obviously grievous sins of the paralyzed man with a single word. No ceremony, no sacrifice, just love. Just his love for this person and his mercy and his compassion wrapped up in a single sentence. Your sins are forgiven. And the irony in all of this is that had the Pharisees asked, had they asked, they too could have received God's forgiveness. They don't ask. They don't even believe. They just, they can't, they can't accept it. It's just too much, man. And those who witnessed the miracle of God's forgiveness that day in that little house, all crammed in there together, are split into two camps. And the one camp are those who are forced to recognize an act of God. They just have to see it and go, man, I can't argue with the miracle. They're forced to recognize an act of God that is suggesting Jesus' authority to forgive sins but who are themselves too proud to approach him for their own forgiveness. That's one camp of people, and it's not a small number. And in the other camp are those who recognize Jesus' authority, and they welcome him gladly. This is what they need. This paralyzed guy, he had no other option. There wasn't, there wasn't a sacrifice that he could give at the temple that would make him walk out restored. 
wasn't anything that was going to deal with that for him. He had one hope, one hope, and it was Jesus, and it was met that day, and he welcomed it with open arms. Man, he needed Jesus to have that authority. He needed it to be true because he, he needed his sins forgiven. This thing that kept him away from everybody else, that ostracized him, that, that just isolated him. He needed that healing. Now, for the two camps of people that are there, they all have one thing in common. It says in verse 26, um, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe, and they said, we have seen remarkable things today. Notice they're not all saying, Jesus, you're the Son of God, you're the Messiah. I know it's true. No, I'm going to follow you with the rest of my life. They're not saying that. They're just going, man, that's a big deal. Pretty remarkable. Pretty neat. <laughs> but that stops a little short of, of calling him their master, their Messiah. Stops a little short of finding the forgiveness that they need. Today, we can leave this passage in either of the two camps. But I don't believe, actually, that the greatest risk facing us is our, our doubt in the supernatural capacity of Jesus to deal with our sins or even to, to heal our infirmities. We pray for these things earnestly. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it doesn't happen. We have stories in our own congregation of people who were healed. We, we, we got to deal with that miracle, man. You got to deal with the miraculous. You just have to. You can't get around it. But I think our culture today is it's, it's so open to all forms of spiritual possibility that, well, let's just suffice it to say, we're more open to spirituality today than we were even 10 years ago, even 15 years ago, right? We're, we're open to other people's ideas of, of the spiritual, other explanations, and we're open to, to being presented with supernatural things. We're not, as, we're not as factual and scientifically driven as people often think that we are. That we're, we're ready to accept some of these, these new supernatural explanations for things as, as cultures come together and we have bigger pictures of things. And, and honestly, that is, it is a strength of our culture, in a sense, that we are spiritual people because it opens doors for conversations and, and, and for dialogue and for compassion and love and mercy and all of these things that we can now show to each other because we're not enemies and we're not fighting over all this stuff. And so it's a, it's a good thing that our culture is moving in that direction. But as often the case with our greatest strength, inside of our greatest strength, I believe that we find our greatest weakness or, or one of our more vulnerable areas, right? Because we, we tolerate all of these things, but we have no plumb line to reference off of. We become quickly lost. Here's, here's what I mean. We would not dare to express openly the opinions of the early Palestinian Jews. We would not dare to say that a person with a disability is somehow intrinsically sinful. That, that well, you're disabled because, you know, because you're a sinner. Not like me. You're, you're worse than me. We wouldn't do that. That's ridiculous. Like, we can't, it's, it's just impossible to think, right? We're really careful to separate the person from their disability. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing to do that. We don't see that person as just their disability or whatever. We, we see the person behind it, right? And that's a good thing. But so long as the plumb line that we reference off of for whether that person is a good person or not, if that plumb line, if that frame of reference, if that thing that we're referencing off of is ourselves, if they are good relative to ourselves, or relative to our culture, or the way that we think as a culture, then we're lost. We have, we have no solid ground on which to say, yeah, this is, this is good, objectively, or bad. It's a seemingly small step that we take when we say, if nobody is better or worse than me, you know, doesn't matter if you're disabled, whatever, who cares? All people are saying, nobody's better or worse than I am. These are better and worse are relative, subjective terms to talk about other people. They're, they're relative to us. We're referencing off of ourselves. But then we make a jump that says, actually, nobody is, is better or worse than me, um, and there is no such thing as 
good or bad. Because good and bad, that's an objective qualifier. You can say this thing is good, this thing is bad. This thing is healthy, this thing is not healthy. This thing is whole, this thing is broken. This thing is good, bad. It's objective. It can be seen and, and judged off of something, but it can't be judged off of us. It has to be judged off of God, right? And this goes back to the fact that all of our sins, whatever, whatever sin you're thinking of is first and foremost an offense against God. He is that thing that we reference off of when we say this is good or bad. We have to go back to what he says about it because he's not relative. He doesn't change. He's not fickle. His culture doesn't change and shape the way that he thinks. He doesn't, he doesn't go through all of the mental gymnastics to excuse and justify his actions like we do. He is good. He is God. And he has laid out what is good here for us. And if we don't reference off of that, we are lost. And we rightly understand, I just want to keep working with this because it's a, it's a big thought in my brain, but we rightly understand that a person's disability does not automatically reflect some disabled inner reality, right? This is not a reflection of the inner person. But we make a poor logical extension when we claim that because they are no more sinful than you or I, that they are not, in fact, sinful. Right? Does it feel weird a little bit to say that a person in a wheelchair, is a sinner. It feels a little weird, feels a little uncomfortable, because it feels like you're attacking a person with disability. But what you're really saying is that we're all sinners, and there's nothing that you can do that's going to change that basic human condition. And no matter how you look compared next to me, it doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is how you look when God sees you. Whether you are seen as an offender against God, or whether you are forgiven when God looks at you. That's what really matters. So this is what I believe is our greatest risk that we're facing. It's not a lack of faith in Jesus' capacity to deal with our sin. It is our willful blindness to and inner dismissiveness of our need for Christ's forgiveness. We don't think we need it. We don't even think that we're that bad. Because we're judging by everybody else around us. And so we have a thousand other things that we come to Jesus with. We go, oh, man, I want this. I want that. We're like needy little kids, man. Imagine how obnoxious that must be. <laughs> and we fail to understand or ever really grasp the fact that we have offended God. You've offended God, even if you're in a wheelchair. You've offended God. That's what sin is. Is walk in the opposite direction that God is asking you to walk. It's, it's when you hurt the things that he's made beautiful. And what you have spent your whole life doing is, is, is being defined by that. You're lost in your offense against God. And, and that needs to be dealt with. That is your greatest need. Your greatest need is not your cancer. That's crazy to say. It's not the cancer of your friend or family member. It's not my son's sickness. It's not anything. Your greatest need, the, the greatest gift that God could give you would be to forgive you for offending him. The greatest thing that you could get from God is forgiveness. The greatest thing you could ask Jesus for is for him to please forgive you. But we skip over that. We just jump right past that little part. And we go right into like, okay, Let's, uh, let's start working on my personality here. Make me a better person, more tolerable to live with, a, a, a better human being to be around, a faster preacher. Sorry, guys. There's all these things that we're asking God for, right? But we don't, but we don't, we fail to look at the inner, the inner reality. We fail to, to address the actual thing happening inside of us, which is that we need God's forgiveness more than anything else. Now, during the, the Christmas Eve service, and this is, this is just a, a, a wrap-up here, but, well, before I get there, Jesus didn't heal every disabled person, right? He doesn't. He doesn't heal every disabled person of faith when he was walking on the earth, but he did offer forgiveness to every person. He's offered all of us the opportunity to be forgiven, to be reconciled to, to, to God. And he compounded his grace to us by offering us eternal life, which is only possible by asking for and receiving his forgiveness for our sins. So we just we just take, if we are assuming that we're we're gonna get all of these things and we've never really asked God for forgiveness, we're assuming too much. Jonathan Edmonds preached a sermon, a famous sermon back in the day. It was called 
sinners in the hands of an angry God. I don't think that our world today would receive such a sermon so openly as it did back then. I don't think we will either experience the same revival that they experienced during Edward's time until we do. We need to be able to, to realize our situation and our greatest need. During our Christmas Eve service, I quoted the, the hopeful words of Revelation 21, which reminds us of that day to come when God will wipe away every tear from the eyes of his people, when there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things will have passed away. That's a hopeful, that's a hopeful verse, but we're, we're reluctant to finish the paragraph. We're, we're, we're less ready to hear, to the thirsty I will give water without cost on the spring of the water of life. Good. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the adulterers, and all the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. We don't preach that verse very much, do we? We're uncomfortable with that stuff. God's telling us that there is an objective, an objective reality. There's a person out there who is either offended or pleased by the way that you're living your life. And that your reconciliation to God matters. What the world thinks about you does not matter at all. He could, if you left your relationship with God and he just said to you, child, your sins are forgiven you, that could be enough. You could still stay paralyzed. You could have all the disabilities and infirmities that you want. And that would be enough. Because there is coming a day when he will wipe away every tear, when all the things, the old order of things will be renewed and restored and made new. But it's not today. We're moving forward to that day. Today, we need to come to God and ask him, please, please forgive me. I want to invite you guys to pray with me this morning. Um, I'm going to pray for forgiveness so you can join me in your heads if you like to um, as we pray to God and ask him to forgive our sins. Father, we get so lost in the wrong kind of healing, so wrapped up in, in looking for things that make our pain go away or lessen our suffering here or whatever it is, and we don't give our uh, half a thought to our eternal reality, to the true miracle of who you are and what you're offering us. God, would you forgive us? Would you heal us inwardly? Would you forgive our offense against the Father? Would you teach us to walk in your ways and to follow you, Lord? Would we experience the healing that comes from knowing you? We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. All right. Mark? We're going to sing one last song. The kids are probably going crazy right now. And, uh, and then we'll...